This is the Lean Construction Blogs Podcast, a podcast dedicated to stories, case studies, and lessons learned of applying lean construction from around the world. Join Dick Beyer as he interviews industry leaders, lean construction practitioners, and subject matter experts to help you improve the build environment in general and your design and construction projects in particular, advance your lean journey, and bring your continuous improvement efforts to the next level. Let's get started. Good morning, everybody, or good day, wherever you happen to be. This is the Lean Construction Blog Podcast with Dick Beyer, and I'm Dick Beyer, so I'm exactly where I should be. Today, we are having a, uh, a great visitor, um, one of my closest friends. This is the only person I know in the world that talks faster than I do, so we can probably talk for 45 minutes and get about an hour and a half worth of podcast time in. Uh, so if you you may know her as the queen of prefab, you just may know her as, as Amy Marks, as I do. So welcome, Amy. Thanks so much for joining us this morning or this Thanks. afternoon. Thanks for having me, Dick. Yeah, I'm I'm pleased to have you because every time we do one of these workshops together, we always think about, wow, this is just a podcast waiting to happen. So I know now we're making it happen. So, I love it. Yeah, so thanks for joining us. Uh, you are going to be episode number 10. You would have been episode number two, but your schedule is so busy that... I, I'm always a 10, Dick. That's all you got to know. I'm a 10. It's perfect. A 10 works out well. He's a um, That's what they say. <laughs> so I've known you for uh, probably 10 years since we were up in Portland together doing that crazy thing. Um, and in the 10 years, you and I were both trying to sell our, our companies to somebody and... Uh, and we both succeeded somewhere along the line, which is really crazy. Um, but tell us a little bit about your background, because I think you've got a really uh, interesting history and background. Yeah, I mean, it depends how far you want to go back. I it's sort of, you know, I grew up in the construction business. So I'm actually I always consider myself a throwaway kid. I was kind of a throwaway kid. But, um, you know, I grew up in construction and worked in general contracting and then, you know, had an opportunity to be sort of the sweat equity partner in a factory that did, you know, steel and concrete volumetric mods, as well as, you know, we were one of the first bathroom pod companies in the United States, as well as some other assemblies, but really worked in like crazy broad markets, like from the government and like, you know, sort of like in that uh, hardened facility stuff to, you know, things like power modules and, um, you know, dormitories and telecommunications and data centers and hospitals, like everything. Like I didn't realize like at the time, if that company still existed, actually, we I own the IP of that company, but like if that company still existed, it was a 75-year-old company that had like unbelievable, you know, capabilities and stuff that really was sort of before its time was for a long time. But um, and then so um after that, I decided that you know, every problem looked like a nail because I was holding a hammer of what I knew how to build. And I left, and the management team left with me, and we started a really innovative company called Excite Modular, which was a consultancy at first only that helped people to optimize, you know, to enable and optimize prefabrication in their design and, and make world. And then, you know, somewhere along the way of that company, people convinced me to start building again. And we ended up building all these data centers that were built in the U S and shipped overseas. And my evolution really became to Autodesk, um, you know, this whole queen of prefab thing, which has, you know, a crazy big social media following. And we've worked with a lot of customers they came to ask me about my opinion on their strategy at the time. Um, and that's a funny story in and of itself, you know, and that's how I ended up here at Autodesk, really. 
Well, that's that is so cool. You and I met when we were working with some giant um, chip manufacturer trying yeah. to help them rethink the way that they built their facilities. Uh, and I remember that um, this was like a, a $2 billion facility yep. and, and they had looked at two parts of it. One was to go out to the world and see if they could get marketing uh, materials agreements that could really drive down costs. And the other was to kind of look at the way that they did things. And we were working on the way that they did things part. And it was funny because one of the, the costing materials guys came back after three years and said, really good news. We can save you 5% overall on your costs. <laughs> and we spent six months together, co-located, doing a kind of target value design-ish kind of thing. As I remember, we took almost $800 million out of that $2 billion yeah. facility. Which Don't was- tell anybody we lived together for like almost a year. It was actually almost a year. But like uh, every other week I got to spend with Dick Byer trapped in a room. <laughs> <laughs> that was so much fun. And there were there were nights when there was alcohol involved as well. As well I recall. <laughs> it was definitely like, you know, what's funny about that. I, I was at another job just like that. And I, I, I'll never forget, even the procurement guy was like, and we think at the projection of the future, we could save 2% off of materials. That was a, a different job. And that's exact. And so I was like, okay. And I, I could never remember his name later. And I was like, you know, Mr. I used to call him Mr. 2%. I forgot like what, yeah. but I was like, is that what we're shooting for at the end of this lifetime that we could save 2% off of only materials if we just get a better deal? And so I was like, I feel like we could do much better than that, but yeah. Well, that's and why we- it's so cool to, to, to pull together a team of disparate people because when you just get like contractors together, they're always yelling at the architects about materials, right? Yeah. And, and they're always thinking that, that the way to budget sanctity is through materials. And that experience, as well as a lot of other experiences, told me it's it's the way you put things together. It's how you think about right. putting things together. And it's the labor portion of how that stuff comes together. It really is is where the cost savings are. Uh, with, with, and, and without sacrifice to quality, I mean, you have better quality, right? Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I think at that time, you know, like our group at the time was really enabling in the design process and procurement process by bringing those people that had the make information, right? I don't know if you remember this, but so our whole premise when we decided to go work there was we were going to have these tiger teams, right? And these tiger teams were around these, you know, we would ideate around what elements could be, um, you know, aggregated into assemblies and that could be built, you know, in a, in a manufacturing facility and who would build them was another story. But, you know, if you think about it, we were doing a lot of that stuff. We were doing basically, I call it now manufacturing informed design, but by hand, like we were doing it by hand. And, you know, that's always my thing about IPD. And that was IPD like in that notion. It's like, if all we have is by hand and getting people with their mouths to come to the front of the process, like, I don't want to say my hair doesn't look as gray as yours because I dye it blonde, but we're in trouble. <laughs> like we don't have many, much of many more of us to come to the front of the process. Right. So right. I think, I think it was, I think I learned so much actually on that job, mostly because there was a lot of people involved in it that were very good. Um, but also because it was very comprehensive and it was a timeout, you know, it wasn't like they had to build something like the next day. So we had like, a little bit of the luxury of time to think of the best way to run a process, not how much time we had to shove a process into what time we had. You know what I mean? Right. Because you're, you're, you're so right. You're always trying to, to shove a three-day process into the next hour that you have. And <laughs> if you don't think about it, and then it really is kind of a nice way of, of phrasing it when you say you, you, you bring the makers to the front of the design process, right. because they don't realize that. 
right? When you bring them into the room, they don't realize that you're bringing them in there to contribute to how this thing is actually made. Yes. What they think that they're there for is to say, well, yeah, I, I, I guess we could do that. And you really have yeah. to, you have to poke them in the, in the butt with a needle yeah. to some degree. You know, it's so funny. I had somebody say the funniest, like it's, it's two parts to that conversation. It's like, to me, there's converge, there's just convergence happening all around this world. Right. Across the silos, you know, I always say like, you know, that's why industrialized construction is so big now is that this convergence has happened with process and technology and industries, but business models have really changed, right? So like we were talking about the makers, right, for a minute. So I'm like, the makers are converging too. So like you have like the building product manufacturers that make what we think of as like manufactured products that have always been manufactured. They're pressing down for larger and larger assemblies, right? And then you've got the subcontractors or even generals now that are self-performing. And even like, I mean, I know architects that are self-performing make now that are pushing up that want to become more like manufacturers with these assemblies, right? So those two groups converge into the make, right? They become make. So now think about those kinds of people. Like I always like hear subs say to me, like, if you get me in early, if you get me in early, okay, fine. What if I get you in early? What are you going to say? Like you have... You have to have productization. You have to have products to sell and understand how we design around them, right? As opposed to like design from the inside out of the product. You know, I always make the joke, nobody, you know, no architect wakes up in the morning and decides they're going to design a 217 and a half horsepower generator. They just don't, right? Right. Because they come in products, right? Like, but it's funny because I do think like moving that make to the front is more than just about putting that person up there. If they don't know what to do and they haven't codified their offerings and like, with products and like understanding how we design around them, how they connect, what the workflows are for them. You have kind of, you're just, you're just putting a guy in the room that like, or a woman in the room. That's like, here's what we know. Give me a space and I can make anything. Cause that's what they're used to doing. Right. right. Like, well, and, and that pressure, I, that, that pressure comes specifically, I think from the trades that are used to making stuff. Yeah. So whether it's, it's probably more in the, uh, a mechanical trade so that there are people that hook things together. And there are things that there are people that make things and then hook them up. Right. I mean, sure. is definitely in the, in the forefront of the makers and some structure. Like I would say those, those four are definitely up there and they're more complexity in those. So they've specialized, right. So it's like the GC don't know how to do that anymore. Really. Most of them, you know? Well, and what they're, yeah. So, and, and that really is because GCs don't perform any work, right? Like there's a, there's a general contractor, uh, friends of mine in Chicago, um, McHugh, who does concrete for everybody in Chicago. Yeah. Because they figured out how to do concrete. So they're one of the GCs I really love hanging out with because they know the value of work. They know the value of, of figuring out how to make things better, right. how to how to create a flow right. that makes that makes their work better. Right. And and since GCs don't self-perform any work, they're really in this in the service of the trades to try to allow the trades to do as much work as they can in the time that they have. Right. So I remember you and I were at uh, the, at the LCI design forum with Stan and we were talking about designing buildings from the inside. out. I was talking about designing buildings from the inside out so that you could actually look at elements. Right. And and you were talking about the technology piece of that and the AI that's going to begin to inform that. And Stan was talking about what the role of the architect was in that. And I think for most people, I mean, I was at the LCIA Congress just this week. And I, for most people, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's so funny. I was there just pre-recorded. You, so I was in one of those things where I was pre-recorded for it. 
you know something about architects? Like I, I had this epiphany in the last few months about architects. Are you ready? Yep. Maybe not a few months, maybe in the last year. You know, I stopped saying I stopped saying design for manufacturing and assembly about a year ago. I say data for manufacturing and assembly. So architects, if you like, permit me like a minute just to tell a little story. It's oh, like, no, please. yeah, okay. that's so, what like, this is all about to give you an hour to tell stories. Well, and, you know, I love to tell you and I have stories for days because we've been on so many projects. Like I forget yeah. the number of projects. <laughs> I was on. But, like, so let's just take it for a minute like this. An architect needs to design an assembly. Let's call, I mean, call it anything, call it a pump skid, whatever. I don't care. Right. Call it any kind of assembly that has some sort of MEP in it to make it easier. That isn't so sexy that they could care less about because it's not going to, it just needs to perform. Right. Yeah. It's not going to knock um, anybody's socks off. Right. It's funny. I always use the toilet bathroom battery, like pack the guts behind the stalls in the, in the, in the bathroom. Cause like, I'm like, listen, everyone has to go to the bathroom, but nobody cares what's behind that stall wall. Right. Like, like at the end, let's call it that. Okay. In the beginning, an architect is going to put a placeholder in that spot. He's going to pull something off his desktop that's either a cut and paste from another job or some database that's static or something that he can manipulate to fit a space, whether, you know, whatever that is, it's a placeholder, right? And he, and he does that. The next, he passes that along to the GC. That GC adds a bunch of other assumptions to it. They do the same thing. They go to their desktop. They pull some assumptions off of it, what they did last time, some cut and paste some other placeholder. Maybe they talked to a few people that inform it. Those people are not getting the job yet. They're just talking to a bunch of people. They put their stamp of assumptions on it. Months later, they finally pass it to that guy or gal who's going to make the toilet bathroom battery assembly. And they get this thing and they're like, let me pass it to my fabrication shop and see what they can do with it. Right? Like, cause it's nothing they make. It's nothing ever they've made before. And it's some hybrid Frankenstein of some bunch of things that were sort of cut and pasted together from the two people above them that doesn't squint your eyes. It might look like what they make, but it isn't really what they make. So then the fabrication shop goes, it's like not enough space. Like they gave me a space for a two stall and this is a five stall. And like, you know, I, or like they've used the guts from the seven stall and really this is a five, you know, whatever. Then they kind of say, well, I can do, they do the best they can, basically. Let's be fair, right? They really, they do the best they can in productizing something after the fact that can be made. And they send it back up to that GC where they then say, does this meet your original costs and schedule out things? And he goes, no, let me pass it back to the architect. And that guy goes, does that meet your original intent? And he goes, not really, right? And that process is called coordination meetings, right? Like after, right. <laughs> it goes around and around in circles. And like, so but that's not so dangerous. It becomes unfortunately thousands of placeholder assemblies that we're now doing coordination around right, and right. exponentially expensive consequences. Right. And I like to say it like this. It's the worst game of telephone, like from when you were a child ever, except the phrase in the beginning was never right to begin with. So architects need to be the consumers of this data, not the generators of it. Right. And they need to do it in a place that's in real life to the manufacturing constraints of what can be made. That is not generated by them, right? They don't know those things. Well, and, and that's why if, if, you, if you design the systems, to, if you allow the systems makers to design the system that's going to work best within the, the space that you have, uh, I mean, that's really where you should start. So we, we no, just do this, back, we no, just do this backwards, right? I want to argue with you. Not design it in the space that you've given them. How about ask them the space that's required for the functional performance of what you need? Actually, that's that's, a, that's exactly what I... 
Right. Space is the culprit. Oh, oh right. for, like 50 percent of the time, nobody leaves enough space for what they actually is required. And so therefore they're making some crazy thing that doesn't quite. And that's where the cost goes up. And that's where I would say like 50 percent of the time space as the placeholder is the is the problem. Right. Yeah. What if that didn't what if that wasn't the case, Dick? What if. Well, yeah. So I was talking to this guy, this professor from uh, UC Davis. Uh, for like two and a half hours yesterday. He's an estimation professor. Right. So I don't know how you teach <laughs> estimating as a, th- I don't know how you're a professor of estimation. I guess it's like, awesome. well, I'm close to a professor. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm estimating myself as a professor, but and we actually had a really good talk about things like when you're, when you're thinking about the building right at the very beginning, right? You've got everybody, you, you brought in everybody whose assumptions that you always make about them. So let's just bring all those people in so we don't have to make assumptions about it. Why right? do I have to bring those people in? They don't exist anymore, Dick. They don't exist anymore. They're me and you. I can't go to all those places. All right. Well, let me yeah. just uh, let me just throw this out to you, right? Yeah. So you have this functional program and you've got yeah. a building that has to do these 15 different things, right? Yep. And so that's in, that's a bubble diagram someplace that says these are the things it has to do. Yeah. And and then you give that bubble diagram to a mechanical firm, a mechanical design build firm. And you say, this is the square footage. And you're going to tell us what what are the what are the cost components that as we go into this design piece are really going to influence these things. Right. So you're 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 not designing a system that fits into any space anywhere. You're saying given what this building is supposed to do, here's the mechanical system that's going to work best for that. So that we can do, we can do the elements that you want us to bring to, we can, you know, we can get the Jimmy Shoe size seven shoe. <laughs> you know, I love my shoes. <laughs> to bring that in there. So we're, we're, we're not waiting until, until anything is designed. We are considering systems at the same time that we're considering how the building is supposed to function. And yeah, the building I- isn't even designed until all of those until the until the input from those systems people is actually manifest. So it's how that input actually is. What technology captures that and what how it informs the design software that I'm super interested in now, right? Like exactly. I, I think I think you have the somewhat of the flow, right? But I think the notion that people and Every time you have to pick your partner so that you can get the right partner to design the right system, I think is wrong. I'm being honest. I think the vision for the future that I'd like to live in is a place where you have, I mean, listen, you have things like SpaceMaker out there that do quick generative design with tech that is based on actual things. I'd like it to be more informed by actual make than it is currently. But I think that technology exists that, what you just said, the premise of what you just said scares this ecosystem because they have to pick a partner. They have to figure out different design contracts of how far they're taking it. They ha- There's a lot in there that's like very against what they do today, right? Like it's very disruptive to what they do today. And it's never getting captured as something that can be reutilized, right? Because then they go to a different partner and a different partner picks a different thing. And, and then their building operationally is different because the different design assist. Scratch that for a minute. Pretend for a minute the vision looked like this, that there was a place where people could put what they make and that architects, instead of clicking on their desktop, could click and have access to all the things that were made, still work within their design tools and adjust those things using technology in within the native stuff they know how to do. Like they could still use generative design or 
better now. They could use generative design to enhance what combination of things they need in the selection of what they pick. They could adjust, let's say size. They could make that longer, shorter, fatter, wider, but only within the manufacturing constraints, right? I don't need a person to tell me that. Those are the parameters and rules and constraints in the product that I'm using that is captured in a different kind of tech. So I'll give you the easiest example that is in our space, Dick. Think about, and I, I'm going to use an example that people will be confused about because they'll think it means something else, but let's just take it. And I'm going to take this from a friend that at DPR that said it. I'm, I'm, I'm elaborating on his story, but it's the genesis was his. He said, I bought a dresser um, from somebody, like, or from Ikea, actually, on a Tuesday. I hope he's okay that I share this story, but I'm I will sure say <laughs> Super smart people over there. That's so, that, that was like a plug for them. Um, and he's like, I bought a dresser um, for, from Ikea on a Tuesday for my 12-year-old daughter and I to put together on the weekend. It came on Thursday. She was able to put it together by herself on Thursday, right? And uh, I came home and it was already done. That's not the super simple feat. Like everyone takes that story and they're like, yes, pieces and parts should be so easy to put together on site. Everything should be plug and play so a 12-year-old could do it. That's wrong. That's not the story here. The part of the story we missed, right? And everyone talks about it, plug and play Ikea, it should like that. no. The part of that story that nobody thinks about is unbelievable engineering went into play prior to the 12-year-old girl who can put it together in some technology that made it totally possible for a 12-year-old girl to put it together. That's the hard work and tech that we don't focus on. We just go, should be plug and play. It must be the construction guys that integrate this. That's wrong. It's before that when the architect and engineer, not the architect, the engineer of that product, the product engineer figured out the right pieces and parts to put in in what order and what way. And, And I guarantee you the same expert doesn't use the same tools in order to interpret that. So it's two separate sets of tools, right? That's where we get that story wrong. So, so that's so that's actually really interesting to me because that's that's the backstory, right? That 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 nobody ever tells it. N- nobody thinks that like when when people think about the Toyota way, they think about the line and they think about mm-hmm. the end on cord and they think about that. They never think about the right. guy that designed the line, <laughs> so it could actually happen, right? Which is the harder part of all of it, and the right. part that's most transformational for us. And 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 so the pushback I think that we would get from that is that people would say, well, these things are prototypes, you know, every building's a prototype. It's not, you know, we, we, we don't have that yeah. because we don't have that. They don't have to be, but because you're right. So funny, who says that architects, you know, that's true. So right. let's, go, let's go right to those architects for a minute. Right. So if we, and not, I'm not doing a shameless plug. I think it was something that was really good for a lot of architects. I did this thing at Autodesk university this year called uh, productization and the transformation. It's like a 10 minute little theater talk, right? So let's think about what you just said. I agree. Lots of things can be different articulations at the end of the day, but I tell this story. I might've told it in that thing called the art of sound. And I tell it in that series. I'm like, listen, you can buy Sonos as an example, and I can get a system sound system in my house like that. It'll cost me the same. It'll be cheap. It'll be looked exactly like everybody else's. And that's what architects are worried about, right? That everything you have will look just like the same, all gray boxes, all gray buildings, all plug and play. Sure, everyone will have sound, but it won't be the art of sound, right? And that's where we want buildings to be beautiful and how we interact with them, how they fit with the ecosystem. So you do realize I could go down to my audio consultant in my town and say, in my new renovation, I would love this beautiful uh, you know, sound system. And that person, architect, Reed, says, 
What are the parameters of what you're looking for? What tech do you want to integrate into this? What future tech do you think you'll integrate into this? How do you want the look and feel? What do you want to feel in the spaces that you're in? How big are the spaces? Do you want other things? Do you want your bathtub water to turn on when this music starts? Do you want whatever, the lighting to change? And by the way, they can put together for hundreds of thousands of dollars instead of my $8,000 Sonos buy what we want that to look like. And they never build speaker wire and they don't build amplifiers and they don't build speakers. But what they do do, I did twice. What they do is, (laughs) sorry, what they do, that's a dick fire one for you. What they do is I tell them, I'm never going to put ugly black speakers in my house because I love things that are white and sparkly. And they go, don't worry, we're going to make custom speakers for you that nobody in this world has that fit your decor. I've enabled and freed that architect up through productization to give me a system unlike anybody else's in the world and to customize bespoke pieces and parts because they don't have to build speaker wire, because they don't have to build speakers. They're enabled and freed and unshackled. Do you think architects want it to be data managers? They don't. They want to make stuff. Do you think anyone cares about my toilet bathroom battery thing? No, architects don't care about that other than it works, other than it flushes and like people get to go to and it's to code. Like maybe I'm oversimplifying. And, and, and it fits, right? It fits. Somebody's going to bang me that they're super interested in toilet battery bathrooms, but whatever. Like I'm just saying like, <laughs> like use it in quotes, whatever that thing is, right? Like, and if you can productize the more complex areas where the makers have the most knowledge base, right? The makers of both the building product manufacturers and the subcontracts. If you push that to the front, all that hard engineering of the Toyota production system that, right. then, gets, that then gets articulated in the line, that then gets utilized and consumed by the architect, we're making an analogy, right? Correct. Then you have a winner, but so, you have so to have I'm, I'm, I'm Sheila and I run uh, Bob's hospital Medicare program. Right. And I need a, um, I need a 250 bed hospital. That's got a med surge and an emergency room and a couple operating rooms. Um, and it'd be nice to have some kind of research part there. So I, 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 what I would normally do is I would put an RFP on the street. Well, I, I'd go to my C-suite and I'd say, uh, this is what we need. And, and, and here's what we think the budget is. And I would expect them because they're all, you know, Harvard MBAs or whatever to go through just like you. And they would go through all the numbers and they would run them and they would say, okay, so you can do that or not. But that's not what happens. Uh, so they say, oh, oh, okay, fine. So an RFP goes on the street for a design team and the design team comes in and they run charrettes and they, you know, bring their little wagons by and say, these are all the things that you could do. And what would you like? And, you know, do all the beds have to be left-handed or whatever, right? So, so if, if you're Sheila or you're, you're Amy now and you've replaced Sheila uh, in Bob's healthcare, Medicare hospital thing, how do you start that project? So here's what I'm going to tell you. Starting with the project isn't the right time to start. Awesome. I would tell you that you need an owner playbook so that you can identify the requirements and performance of your business needs for all of these hospitals and your operational needs and functions of these hospitals. And you have to define those things and define the rules of engagement that you know you want to have around these hospital builds, how you expect the procurement to go, how you expect the legal to go, what things you need in order to enable, in this case, you know, some sort of innovative design process uh, by that's informed by manufacturing, right? So you need a playbook. And that's something that we're working on at Autodesk right now um, with some friends and anyone that would like to get involved, feel free to give me a holler. But these owners need a playbook because then you need to understand productization and how that's going to inform. Like we use that art of sound. What things could be productized that you can reuse 
because you want to reuse these things, probably not just in one room, but in many rooms and not just many one building, but in many buildings. So operationally, you have consistency and you actually have benchmarks. So I say it starts with a playbook on what your needs are as a customer and how you want to interact with the ecosystem. And many of our big owners now are product are saying, just like, you know, it's funny when we talk about the guys we used to work with back in the day, right. they thought they thought we, you know, procurement wise, we make these contracts and we get these things. What's happening now is larger and larger percentages of these buildings are becoming more like equipment as those two groups converge, right? So you can identify what pieces and parts actually should be standard across many different kinds of buildings. Those bathroom battery, you know, toilet backup, bathroom batteries, right? Whatever. And the rest can be designed around that, right? And 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 that is, I see now in a lot of the owner playbooks, it used to be 10% productized, 15, 40, 60. They're getting higher and higher and higher as they decouple process that doesn't have to be different every time and could be the same if they just identified what that piece part looks like with information from the makers, right? Like, so you have to stop. And it's funny, look at the job we just talked about. That's what we want to know how we saved $800 million. We did exactly what I just said, right? right. We said for every building, you're going to make these pieces and parts and you're going to identify them as equipment at some point with partners that you've identified around the globe that can supply these things to your, all your jobs. And they become a, a bigger part of your playbook that gets, you know, eats away at the wasteful process that is cutting and procurement and all those, you know, like think about that. You know, I feel there's so much, the problem is we're paying people on waste right now. We have to stop. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, what, what, what you're actually saying is that the entire process that we think about now starts at the wrong place and just accelerates the wasteful production of what you call coordination. I mean, Of course it does. Look at the Lean Construction Institute's results on the best projects ever. Right. Like, Best projects ever. I think it was like a few years back now, getting old, but remember they did that study on um, uh, capital projects and they interviewed like, I forgot, 80 of the biggest customers. I think I have the number sort of right. And they, data, I think, did that study like that. for them. Literally yeah. like, I- I'm going to remember the numbers. It was something like, of this was like self-proclaimed joint IPD type groups. They were like best projects ever. Only somewhere on rough average, one was 17, one was 21% were of the best projects ever were on time and on budget. Let's say 20%, 20% of the projects, somebody was like best projects ever. We're like, beat, you know, we're on time and beat budget or something. Right. The rest of them were like, I, it was something like over half were late and like same. Those are the best projects ever. Of course, this stuff doesn't work, Dick. Well, like our <laughs> results are results are results, right? Like right. at the end of the day, we don't. And by the way, this part, you won't like, um, I was like, if it did work, it wouldn't be such a tiny percentage of the contracting methodologies on this planet. Like, so, right. Like if something was that good, it would have swept the world and we would have transformational change. It hasn't changed much. Well, of what we've done. yeah. So, the, 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 so, so part of that, so this, this really isn't an argument. This is, this you, is, I love arguing with you, though. <laughs> but, but what, what, what I think is what, what happens is people get so invested in things like P6 or yes. estimation software or you know what whatever that 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 thing is that they don't have and, and they're making money at it, right? Yes. So so there's no stress on the system. Right. And and even if you gave them 
the one best way. I mean, every time we we talk to owners about, you know, when I was running LCI, we we had no data. So I would go out there and I would say, we have to, we have this really good idea. And there's a couple of really smart people that think about this, like my buddy Greg and my buddy Glenn and my my buddy Iris. You know, they think about these things and they looked at the system and they said, here's what's wrong with the system. Let's do this. Let's do a complete paradigm shift. And the owners went, Yeah, well, where's the data that shows that it works? Right. Well, I have the data that shows that what you're doing right now doesn't work. So don't you think you should change something? And they go, well, yeah, I don't know. So this is why, you know, one of the things I love about being in Canada is that I figure, you know, first I build a, a business, right? I build a company. And then, and then I got to LCI and I kind of built an organization. And now I want to build a country. So what I need your help in. I already did Singapore. I'm coming to Canada next. Let's do Canada next. Okay, yeah, because Canada is... I've already done this once before. Let's do Canada. Canada is small enough. I um, love Canada. My best friend lives there, actually. I do. Um, I know. <laughs> well, you know, here's the funny part about it. Ready? So that goes along the notion that this hasn't already happened with owners proving it out yet. And that's that's not true. So look at the owner we dealt with how many years ago, 10 years ago, since 10 years, what I call serial owners, right? At the time, I thought of them as like serial killers, right? right. They have large or- programs across the geos. They need operational consistency, like a fingerprint every time they build something, whether it's a manufacturing facility, semiconductor, hospital, whatever. They, they have to have consistency of operations. Those big serial owners right, have actually already influenced this and are are having some success at this. Now, again, success is not 100% productization of their entire building. Some have done that in like full volumetric form in different ways. But think of things like GSK, who they've come out publicly and said, we've got these amount of pieces and parts. Anytime, any, the proof is in this. Anytime you hear a company say, we have a standardization program going on. We have a kit of parts. We have a, it's happened already. It's already happened. In fact, funny enough, Two years ago, we did that McKinsey report that everyone loves to quote of the transformational shift in 15 years. Half of the 45% will be IC. Do you know what they what people don't read in that report? Because nobody reads anything except for me, I think, because I have no life. But not <laughs> except for me. Except for the nerds like me, I should say, that sleep with their phones and read stuff. <laughs> except for nerds like me. Um, in that report, it also said of the emerging disruptions, industrialization and digitalization were the... I think 66% said would have the most impact. And 75% of people that responded to that same survey in McKinsey said that that product-led approach would happen in one to five years. Now we're in year two of that study right now. So this is not like, and I have I can show you tons of customers that have decoupled and productized lots of things in very complex buildings back from 10 years ago from the project you and I were on, right? right. So I don't think you have the proof problem that you think you do. Like, it depends on the, uh, I would say, the sophistication of the owner you're talking to. If you look to the most sophisticated owners in the world, they've already been on this journey for 10 years, or, you know, some of them. Uh, yeah, and then that's, you know, one of my podcasts was with Todd Zabel, the Productivity King. He's my best friend, you know isn't, that? Isn't, isn't he amazing? How do so, you know that true? I, I, I'll yeah. have to ask him. Yeah, you're going to have to. Well, actually coming you're going to have to say you have to watch that podcast. I'm going to. Where we talked about it. So he started something called the Productivity or the Production Productivity Institute or something like that. Whatever yes, I'm actually, my my productization video, I think I'm giving it to him for that. Less, those courses. 
Yeah. And so, um, so I'm speaking to that coming up because when I, when I spoke to him, you know, it's like he was one of the founders of LCI until he got yeah. into a kerfluffle with these guys. Um, and what, what he, what he concentrates on is productivity. So what LCI has always concentrated on is reliability, right? right. And, and he thinks of reliability as like a notion from the fifties, right? So efficiency was a notion from the 1900s. Reliability became a notion in the fifties. And now the, the, notional difference is that we're really concentrated on productivity and, and predictability, this- right? So productivity and predictability, it's not just to be productive. How can I predict things so that I have certainty? I think and, like, and that's where data comes in, right? And that's, and that's, where, where, comes in? that's where managing the data comes in. Yeah. You can't have any of that when it's coming out of people's mouths because there's no stickiness to people's talk. You know what I mean? Like, or I mean, as much as I'd like to think there is, and you would like what we say, there's a reason I have a hoarse voice like 90% of the time because we have to say it over and over and over and over and over and over. It's not codified by tech, right? It's, it has it's, to be. It's, 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 it's why I cough all afternoon because I talk all morning. And then I, I just think I sound more like Janice Joplin because of it. It's very good. Like, you know, it's good. Hang on, hang on. <laughs> But, but he's, you know, I, by the way, I love Todd because I think he's super brilliant and I love what they do over there at SPS. And, and what's so cool about that, it ties right in with what I'm super interested in, right? Like this is more about productization, not just most people think just the physical product. It's the productization of the digital workflow that it has, right? You can't actually automate things and shrink them and optimize them until you actually have, it's like, it's like saying you could automate a factory without laying out the production line. No, first you have to lay out and productize the production, the workflow here. And that way we can then automate it and like, you know, optimize it. You can't, you can't automate and optimize process. You're just, it's like you're the, digital waste exponentially leads to physical waste. And the way to get rid of that is to productize both the physical piece part and attach, you know, the data to it in a digital workflow format with, with, with tech that anyone can access in an open ecosystem in whatever they want to compute. So what I'm really interested in, well, I'm interested in everything that you said, but the, the, the thing that caught on with me is this idea of an owner's playbook. So there are, there are owners that are serial builders, right? That just go out and they do stuff time after time, after time, like the Disney's of the world and the hospital corporation of America and the the Intel's if they're still, if they're still in business. (laughs) Um, and and they would be really motivated to do, you know, that yeah. that owner's kind of playbook. Yeah. But but who comes in and helps owners who build, you know, like we're we're doing a half a billion dollar building at Ryerson University. And so who comes in and helps them develop a yeah. playbook about how they go about doing these things rather than spending two years, you know, with really competent architects to kind of get to a schematic that they have to yeah. sell to people. And, and now that you have a schematic, you know, you're stuck, right? I mean, the, the box is there and there's not much that you can do, right? right. So if you're, you're trying to go in and, and economize, it, it's just pieces and parts. So how do, you, how do you help them create that playbook? So the good news is I've been at Autodesk for a year and a half. And there is a group here now that's formed, been formed since I started called the Convergence Consulting Group. And the Convergence Consulting Group lives in the manufacturing consulting group within Autodesk. And it's all the big guys that have set up manufacturing facilities and data flow and understanding, you know, systems. It's like all the things where we're like, construction should be like more more manufacturing. Like, and we go, great, let's go ask the construction experts how to do that. Wait, what? So no, (laughs) 
So this is like, this is set up by the manufacturing experts on like how to set up manufacturing inputs and outputs, right? And there's a smattering, unlike everybody else who just is like, construction's broken, just listen to us in manufacturing. You can't do that either. You have to have a smattering of how, what stops you and constrains you so we can remove those constraints. So it's a little bit of a mix of convergence consulting between, you know, again, AEC and with manufacturing informing the process. And so that convergence consulting group does more than just implementation of tech. And so a lot of people think that because it's Autodesk, it must just be tech implementation. That's not true. You know, this is about understanding the workflows that we just talked about and productization. And aside from the consultants here at Autodesk, we have a bench of consultants like yourself and like guys like Todd Zabel and other people, right, that do different things because it's not, you know, I always say there's no one ring to rule them all. Think about all the skill sets you need to understand the workflow from conceptualization in a manufacturing-informed design world through design, through all your user group meetings, through all of like your um, out to procurement and execution and, uh, you know, to the construction side of things and assembly and operations. There's a lot of skill sets in understanding that that productized workflow. So there are groups like that right now. I mean, self-serving, it's here at Autodesk, the Convergence Consulting Group that can help you with that. I think this is an answer you won't like. I think the serial build, the serial owners, I used to call them builders, but they got confusing like here at Autodesk, the serial owners, right? Who build a bunch of stuff. I think a lot of that knowledge will trickle down to the owners that only need, Dick Byer, don't die with me on the phone because that would be horrible if that happens. Like, right? Like, I don't want to be the right. You're like, I was with Amy Marks and I, she killed me. And like, then at what is everyone going to think? So don't die on me. So I think the the answer you're not going to like is I think a lot of the learning that's happening with these big serial owners trickles down no matter what happens. So the products that they're making for these groups become products that people enable in other one-off type, you know, large building buildings that they're doing. You know what I'm saying? I think, and you know, that's true because you and I have worked on things 10 years ago that we've replicated the sort of similar pieces and parts for other, you know, things that we've done. And I, I do think that that has the most impact on the people that have like one to build instead of many to build. And so this is not the best answer because I think some of that has to trickle down into, and I think technology will enable that to happen faster. But um, I definitely think convergence consulting can help both on sides of those of that street. You know, and, I mean? and actually, maybe it's going to some of the associations like COA and saying, you know, here here is this would be really useful for your community I to heard. kind of develop yes. this playbook. Um, so here's here's another great question for you. I got a call from healthcare uh, design, the healthcare design org. You know, I'm Deborah Levin, right. and I'm working yeah. with Deborah. What's that? Okay. Yeah, what's the the healthcare and hospital design yeah. group or whatever? Yeah, yeah. yeah. up, up in Canada at CHMM or something like that. There's a million groups like that that could that could be informed. Look, and it's happening now anyway. Look at what's happening in the UK with CIH. That's the same exact thing. The government has $19 billion worth of money to spend. They don't want to build buildings differently every single time. So that will help the jobs that aren't theirs are going to benefit from all the other pieces and parts that inform those designs that can be reutilized in other things without having to reinvent the wheel. You know what I mean? And same thing. Absolutely. I I was just going to actually, so I got called by um, one of my consultant buddies (laughs) um, about six months ago. Uh, who said what they've identified in the UK. So the UK is actually, it's it's kind of like Canada, but it's bigger and they've got more money, right? Well, um, it's bigger in like what? It's not size, like obviously like not well, like land mass. Bigger in population. 
bigger population. Okay. Yeah. So there, there's there's more to work with, right? Yeah. Um, okay. So he called me up and he said they've identified 31 hospitals through COVID that just aren't functioning correctly, and these are the, these hospitals need to be renovated. They need to be fixed. And so I'm thinking as we're talking that what they don't need is an assessment of 31 hospitals. They say, well, <laughs> you should do this here and you should do this here and you should do that there. What they need is that playbook right. to say, here's how we want to deliver healthcare. From now on. And here are the, and the outcome, patient outcomes are determinant upon facilities that can do these seven things. And so every one of our facilities is going to do those seven things. And we're going to think about, and they're going to do those seven things in exactly the same way. And by doing those seven things in exactly the same way, productizing them, got it. We we can develop our plan yeah. to get those those elements, those products, those um, those that equipment. We'll think about those hospitals as equipment for patient outcomes. But that's not new. Look what right. uh, what what Digby was doing, you know, years and years ago over at Sutter Health, and and like what Kaiser Permanente had done on like we want to do all these renovations, but we want to do them all the same way with the same kit of parts. I mean, this is not new. So I feel like in some ways, the thing that is new is it never got captured. Right. Well, it's it's new to some people, right? Well, yeah, it's like, new to some people. But I mean, like, we're not capturing the learning, but for coming out of your mouth and my mouth of the people that were on those jobs, or that data lives in some siloed desktop somewhere that only those people who are experts in that have to know how to get to it and data manage what they knew from five years ago, some project, right? Like, that's the problem. So, and, you know, it's one of the quests that I have, like, I want Autodesk to have a knowledge center for all these things that people have succeeded at over time. So I don't have to be like, that sounds exactly like these other four jobs that were successfully executed. And only I know that in my head and only you know that in your head. Like that's got to stop. We can't keep doing this. How old are you, Dick, now? What, how old do you want to say? 70, yeah, happy yeah, to I'm say. 50. I'm 50 now. Like, I, how much longer do we want to do that, Knockwood? I mean, <laughs> like how, many, how much longer I have to be like, remember this job that we did that thing that was just like that? Like what? Why? What's really great as you get older is yeah. that you can you can repeat the same conversation and not remember that you're repeating it. So that's good. But well, your like frustration is that you have the same conversation over and over and over again. It's like Groundhog Day, right? Well, I'm, I'm everywhere you go. Right. I'm still aware I'm having the same conversation. I know. <laughs> and and so it's it's easier for me, right? Because I'm going, <laughs> oh, this is all fair. this is all brand new. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> But no, but think about it. If you don't codify it and tech doesn't touch it and you don't know the learning frame, how can you optimize? Right. So, you know, I have this whole transformation framework obsession, like right. which is about how to get to a transformation within not just it has nothing to do with IC, just how to transform your company. And I think this whole notion of Clayton Christensen's disruptive, um, you know, innovators dilemma, you know, my book's called the innovators deception that I'm writing right now, because what he said you could change and the framework things change within from the bottom up chipping away is the, is great for an industry, one industry. We're not that. Like if you think about what touches those hospitals in the UK, that's like 12 industries touch the functionality of like what we have, who we have, whether it's the architectural community, the mechanical contractors, the general contractors, the material suppliers to this, the digital twin guys over here. It's like you've got 12 different industries that you're trying to affect change. And at the same time, and at the same time, you have cash for chaos where they just make money on the silos that exist and you're asking them to give it up. Right. We need top down pressure, not bottom up, which is the deception. Right. You know what I mean? so would, 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 yeah. Would, would you actually need somebody who says, well, I'm not paying for that anymore. 
Right. You know, and, and if they don't pay for it, then it's not an offering in the marketplace that makes sense. If nobody's right. going to pay for it. And you need, so you need, you need pressure from the serial owners. You need technology that enables cross industry, cross convergence, cross workflow type, you know, open ecosystems that allow lots of people to participate. I think of that as forge in my head, you know, like where we work, right. but like you need to have um, skill sets change and you need to identify what skill sets are necessary in that group. There's like top down organizational change that has to happen from the biggest owners, the biggest tech companies, the biggest consumers of these, of these things, the biggest players in these areas, right. That are the stakeholders across the workforce. But for that, like, unless you get people that are willing to give up money, um, for what they do today for a better and brighter future for us all. Listen, like if I hear one more sustainability conversation without the word productization in it, it makes me insane. I'm like, I'm the queen of prefab. I just renovated my entire house. I have a dumpster in the front of my house. Makes me sick every day. You have a hundred thousand dollar sound system (laughs) built into the ceiling. I've got a hundred percent of my old bathroom in that dumpster and 50%, not 40, like it's in our landfills now because it's a residential project. I've got 50% of cuttings from my new bathroom materials sitting in that dumpster. I'm the queen of prefab. And even I can't have a prefabricated bathroom and assemblies in my house. So this is, this is one of the great statistics that I use all the time that people, it really resonates with them. Right. So you have a hundred trucks coming up in front of the, uh, the construction site and they're dropping stuff off and right behind them are 37 trucks taking stuff away. How crazy is that? Amanda Gillespie said it the other day at Facebook, her and I did a a talk at AU, a little fireside chat. And she said, I used to have a t-shirt. It said, hurry up and pour that concrete today. So tomorrow we can chip it out. (laughs) Like what? (laughs) Like, Well, and and, and there's a script, her words, we have to flip the script. Yeah. And and, and really what you're saying is there's two things that, um, that really resonated with me. The first was, if you remember on that on that uh, project that we were working on with the eight hundred million dollars and the rest of that, yeah. we were creating all of these A threes, right? We we created these knowledge things, that sure. were, and and they were they're created by hand, so they weren't really. And they're on paper. They're still digital. And, with no and index. And we had digital. remember sitting out front. The receptionist was this master librarian, Meryl. Oh yes, and I, I said to her. That can we do a word searchable database where we put these A3s in and then, then we can, we can, we can just, you know, we can access them whenever we want. We I can, forgot all about that. We and can by take the way, this learning. I guarantee that that system doesn't exist anymore. You know what I mean? Like that was just like a one-off on that one project. They probably still don't utilize that as a database. Like, we, I don't we, know. We, so I, I couldn't get the powers that be to authorize her to do that. I remember that. Because that was extra money. And right. I was like, oh my God. So it I, never I, happened. I, I'm, I, what you just said is I'm the assistant now. I just work at Autodesk. That's what I do. I work here at Autodesk and I've now taken on the role <laughs> of that assistant on a grand scale. Yeah, pretty much. Right. Like that's what yeah. it is. So and funny. I forgot all about that. Dick. We like, just have to be able to access our book of knowledge. You know, we, we, we create knowledge every single day about, about these things and it just gets yeah. lost. Well, and if it's good, it even gets lost. And now we yeah. use so bad data all the time, right? It's like oh, yeah. that whole placeholder notion is insanity for me. And mm-hmm. I, I'll take some blame because, you know, we took the words designed for manufacturing and assembly from the, the, the lean, like, by the way, this is how I believe lean manufacturing and manufacturing gets mishmashed up into the wrong thing over here in construction and design, right? Like, like if you think about the Lean Construction Institute, which, you know, I'm a fan of them. And I like, I just feel like we lost the manufacturing part of the LCI. Like, it's like, what happened? It came from manufacturing. We lost the whole intent of the manufacturing process. 
It's like the same thing happened with the words design for manufacturing assembly. Architects heard that and they were like, that's my responsibility to make sure I design to enable this. And I'm like, no, that's actually not how it works in manufacturing. The people that make things are the ones that are saying, use these pieces and parts because when I make it, it's better. Not your responsibility. We like, again, flip the script. You know what I mean? Like we just heard words and use them to our value prop. And that's not right. Well, this it, it is nothing to do with them. I mean, this is what's really powerful about what you what you said about the the twelve or fifteen or twenty or thirty industries that all affect healthcare. Yeah. Right? That, that we that we work in the built environment. We don't work in the construction industry, and yeah. yet there is a hubris in construction that oh yeah, well that's that's what we do. We we integrate all of these things. We find all of these things. We do it no. And there's an even greater arrogance to some degree in the design side that they say, well, yeah, I have to go find out all that stuff. And nobody could find it all out, right? On I don't own. even know if it's like. I, by the way, you said hubris and arrogance. People already don't like us, Dick. Let's try to be nicer. Like I'm always, I'm on a quest to be nicer. I know that sounds weird. Well, this, yeah. Let's no, just say I, it I, like I, this. I, I'm trying to be nicer, like and make people the hero of their own story, by the way, which I truly think is helping me in getting our message across. Right. Nobody wants to be told that they're arrogant and have hubris. I I mean, but oh, but but there, so the, let me just push back yeah, on a little bit. The industry can be that without the, the individuals being prideful and arrogant. Correct. And I don't there's, think that there's they are. They're victims of that, right? So then right. it's like, then somebody, and that's why somebody turns to an architect and they're like, oh, we want you to design this for 85% prefabrication. They go, what? I don't know how to do that. <laughs> like, how do I do that? Right. And like, again, if I'm going to do that, why would you want to do it differently every single time? Again, if you're going to do like 30 manufacturing facilities or 30 like data, shouldn't we figure out the things that you want to put up in all of them all the same? So I think, I, I think it's more that we want people, right? Just like me, by the way, I am the worst project manager on this planet. I hate being a project manager. It is not my core talent, right? Like just like database management is not architects core talent. That's not what they went to school for. Just like, you know, like mechanical electrical plant is not somebody's core talent. That is really an integrator or, uh, you know, a Sherpa of contractual liabilities and things like, you know what I mean? Like we have to enable people to work within their core talents and let technology take the brunt of some of this connection, right? Like, because we're expecting people who don't have a skill set. You know what I said recently? I'm like, asking somebody to do that skill across the, the workflow is like dropping Amy Marks into the wilderness with Bear Gryllis and a couple other extreme athletes and saying, oh, now that we've dropped you in the dark, because I'm afraid of the dark and I don't love the wilderness so much, drop me in there with Bear Gryllis and a bunch of other extreme athletes and being like, you guys are lost in the dark in the wo- woods. Amy Marks, you're in charge. What? Like, I should never be in charge in that situation. <laughs> I should be like, I should be strapped to somebody's backpack. And like, we should, like, I'll just be like, tell me whatever you want me to do. Yeah, but, let me out of here. But that's my point. Like, and and we're asking the, the Amy Marxes in that scenario to do things that they're not suited for talent-wise or skill set or education-wise, to do things that isn't. And by the way, I have other core talents. It is not getting out of the woods in the dark, by the way. I have other things I am great at. You should focus <laughs> me in doing that. Like, but it's not that. Well, yeah, no. This, this is this is one of the this is one of the things that frustrates me on teams. Yeah, is is that we don't do a kind of Rex Miller deep dive onto what are the core strengths of the people, on right? The, and we put people in positions to succeed and things they'd like to do. Yes, and because if you do work that you like to do, and you can look back at the end of the day and see that you did a good job, Teresa Mirabelli at Harvard Business School says. That's really healthy for you, actually. Yeah. People you know survive so better. You know what's funny about that? 
on that job, we're going back in time now. I'll never forget on that job. One of the pivotal moments of that job, if you remember, is we said our little prefabrication consulting group, we were like, hey, can you give us access to all the budgets and everything that was spent? And they were like, that's not your job. Like your job is, and we said, that's fine. Can we have it? Remember? And I was like, we have a like special skills in like understanding and analyzing numbers. Yeah. And remember that? And they were like, no, you can't have it. And we had to ask a bunch of times. We finally got it. And then we had this like eye-opening like presentation to people like, look, this is where your money is complexity and spent. And this is the areas that have the most current prefabrication that are very efficient. And these ones have none. And they're le- and like, that wasn't our job. Like, and nobody even wanted to give us the data to do the analysis. But, but it like, was this, it, it was a skill that Michael had to crack right, that code. It was 100%. unbelievable. Like, I, I remember the day that he cracked yes. the code and yes. everybody went, Whoa. Right. And I remember this up for years. I'm telling you, and Michael's great at that. And like still is. And like he and I, I remember we sat in this. By the way, I don't know if you remember this part. We did it over two nights. Him and I sat up in a hotel room for two nights. Yeah. What about this? And I'm like, here's what I'd want to know. Right. Cause you, you need, you need sort of both sides. You need like somebody who can do the analysis, somebody who can, who can work the the spreadsheets and somebody who can think and smell test the analysis. Right. So like, that's, that's how him and I were like our talents, right. Came together always. And I'm like, okay, I want to know this and this. He's like, well, I have this data. I give you that. I'm like, that's good. Can I have this too? And for two nights, two nights, that's all it was. We sat in a hotel room up for like, I don't know, nine hours extra. And we came up with these anal- this analysis that it was, again, cracking the code, not our job. There's right now, listen, there's so many people that we, I talk a lot about diversity and inclusion, mostly for diverse perspectives. By the way, I've stopped saying that in, industrialized construction, because we're going to standardize things and move them to factory, get us actually allow us to have less skilled labor work in our space. That's just not true. First of all, anyone that will come to our space right now that isn't from our space is probably more digitally native than any of the people that work in our space, right? right? They expect technology to work a certain way. They use technology a different way than we do in their everyday work and lives. And they're not less skilled. They happen to have different skills than us, different perspectives that we need in this place, which is why every time I walk in a factory, somebody who's fairly young is working all the automotive, all the autom- all the automated and robotics equipment. Inevitably, they're under 28 and they all have an iPad in front of them or they all have their phone and they're all making this like welding robot work and they're all making it right because they're not less skilled. They didn't come from this space. They are differently skilled than us. Right. right. Like. Yeah, I mean, that is such a great point. When I was a kid, I built models. I assembled yeah. stuff. I put together balsa wood airplanes with little engines on them. And I put, I built ships in bottles. And I was an assembler of things. Right. And the people that are coming to, to our job sites now are gamers. They yeah. grew up in this digital world where they expect right. technology to work yes. certain ways. Yes. And they try to outsmart it. Yes, I call it expected experience, by the way, that notion and that there's been some studies about expected experience. By the way, Kaizans worked. Let's bring manufacturing back to lean for a minute because I want to bring this to your lean conversation. Right. The example I always loved and heard that worked is the best idea we ever had was not from any of these engineers. It was from the receptionist, like that one in that job that was like, yeah. I can so by the way, these are the receptionists that have different skills than us and their skill is expected experience. They know like, wait, you do what here? Like, by the way, you know what they say to me? Those people, they're always like, wait, so your biggest innovation in this space 
is people should collaborate up front. Like that's insane. Like they think that that notion that that's the best we've come up with in all these years, that we should bring people to the front of the process and we should all talk is absurd, right? Like, I mean, listen, that's every project they have before they actually start working, right? Like in every one of the things that they've been educated on. And I think, you know, I also, you know, I get on my soapbox about what we need in the, in the ecosystem right now. I just came off a 90 minute um, moderated panel last night um, with United, uh, United contractors and, um, and that association. And we were talking about the fact that, listen, you have to want people in this space that are different, like that think differently, that look differently, that act differently. We happen to be talking about women at the time. And I was like, I'm so tired like every time I'm on a women's panel, there's two things that make me insane right now that we'll talk a little bit about diversity for a minute. <laughs> you know, it's important to me. Every time we talk about getting diverse perspectives, because that's Kaizen, right? Like, that's what I want to tie it back to. Every time you want a diverse perspective, like you need that for success. And yet every time we talk about people that think and act differently in this space, it's like, especially from a woman's perspective, why do all these companies when I walk in here about all these companies programming about women, what's all the programming about leadership and women? You should get your voice. You should speak up. You should get a mentor. You should have somebody who backs you when you say an idea that they remind people it was your idea. Well, huh? We're in a brief up and tumble place. You think all women don't know how to speak for themselves that wanted to come to this space? Like, First of all, That's why women of power don't stay in this space usually because there's no programming for tough, hard hitting. And there's less and less and less of us as we just get tired of what's going on and going to the same women's programming where they tell me I should get a mentor and, and lean in. Right. It's like the, it's, I read, I read an article. It was like gaslighting of women in our space. You're never going to get diverse perspectives if you don't want that, right? And we need that for Kaizen and for this new future of digitally enabled connected workflows. And I would say the other part about it is stop trying to hit my 13-year-old up for her to go into the space. She's 13. Like there are plenty of women and people of diverse populations and diverse cultures that have no job right now with COVID. Can't we get those people? Can't we get the moms coming back from like having kids first that are educated and have all this stuff before you, you're waiting 10 years for my, for Mackenzie to get there? Like, you know what I'm saying? I mean, these are, these are the things that drive me crazy. I mean, I, I have a liberal arts background, right? I have a, I'm kind of a broad thinker. I'm pretty well read. I know a lot of stuff that's happened out there in the world. And that helps me with engineers, right? So yeah. I don't want I don't want my kids to go to college. Well, now my kids are all they've all been through college. I don't want their kids to go to college thinking that they need to get a job out of that, right? That's like going to a trade school. You go to a, you know yeah. you want to learn to be a chef, which is fine. But yeah. if you, but going to so we don't teach music in schools anymore. We don't teach art in schools anymore because we're so focused on trying to crank out engineers, yeah. and not everybody's cut out to be an engineer. Listen, my daughter has to be human beings. My daughter, who's very math and science oriented, this is a true story. We're divorced. And over the last weekend, my ex-husband had her for the weekend. She waited until Monday night for a Tuesday project to build a car out of recycled materials at my house instead of his. And I was like, listen, Kenzie, the first thing you need to learn in life is you go to people who have core talents and the things that you're looking for. Building cars is it with my hands is not mommy's expertise. And her response of that, I build things doesn't make sense. You know, I'm like, we have to go start. People need to start working within their core talents. And there are plenty of characteristics of people that we need in this space right now. Cause we listen, it used to be people would be like, 
well, prefabrication is going to take these jobs away. Uh, well, there, there are no people that fill these jobs anymore. Like Amanda Gillespie, I said to her at Facebook, if I could wave my magic wand for you and do one thing, what would it be? She could have said anything. She said, can you give me a hundred electricians? That was her answer. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I go, uh, no, but I could get rid of the need for a hundred electricians. How's that? So right. like, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like we've lost, we've lost focus. Like here, here, I was in a meeting the other day and they were talking about, you know, coming up with a new way of designing buildings informed by manufacturing and stuff like that. And an architect actually said this back to me. Well, but then I'd have to specify one company to do that one thing. And what if they went out of business? And I was like, listen, let's take your premise for a minute. You can't have, they wanted transformational change at the same time we're having this conversation. I go, uh, okay, let's take your notion that you can't partner and pick a company to provide these products for you. I'm going to make you a bet right now that if you proprietarily spec every single assembly in this building and then dealt with the number of companies that went out of business because you proprietarily spec them, it would be far less strife than the fact that nothing is designed for anybody that makes anything in this building. Like, let's think about those two situations, right? Like, right. like if you, but here's the problem. They're not capable of specking and a proprietary system and down to the piece part of every exactly. single thing in that building. Yeah, so yeah. that's the notion. And by the way, they're not supposed to be. They're supposed to be able to consume that data. And right now we're expecting them to generate it. It's not that guy's fault, right? It's it's the fault of the ecosystem, the way we've set ourselves up to be inefficient. Well, and and, and this is, a, you know, you and I responded to um, a comment at the design forum about, you know, we architects just don't put lipstick on a pig. Right. And I responded by saying, well, if you could design a pig, you would be a much better architect than perhaps you are right now. Cause that's a pretty complicated thing. <laughs> and, pretty hard. Yeah. And it comes out, you know, and it's, I mean, if, 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 if God was going to design a, a pig, right. she would start with the insides, right? She would start with how the pig works. She wouldn't would start with the outside. Most, wherever the most bacon comes from. That's what I'm starting with. Right. By the yeah. way, show where the money is I'm going where the bacon and the, and the pork belly fat is. And first. Yeah. And, 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 you know, and she's sitting around, uh, you know, on her, uh, you know, her design board and she's looking at, well, a pig's got to get into the mud and route around. And so yeah. I'm just gonna give him a flat nose with like a shovel on it. Right. I mean, that's what, that's what design is really about. You, you yeah. design something to work, right. You design they something. They don't even to give perform. them time to do that. They don't even have the, right. I, I people, I use this example every single day and uh, Stan Chu, I have him on a recording saying, I know. I'm like, <laughs> you don't ever want to design fire stairs, right? He's like, I never do. Great. Why do people keep doing it? Like, why are we not just in like pulling data? Why? Because there is no, everyone's data where they're pulling from is disparate and on people's desktops and you need experts to act those, those systems. And again, we're going to enable, I believe the reason I came to Autodesk because I, I actually, the architects one day will come back just like on that other job. Remember when the one guy was like, was the no guy to me. And then three years later, we got a letter. He was like, Amy Marks, I should have listened to her three years earlier. I'm like, my life would have been infinitely better, by the way. But I'm like, three years from now, whenever that is, every architect in the world is going to be like, thank God for all this productization. Because now I get to think about biometric feedback and how these people feel in the space. And if they spend money in the space and the daylighting, I don't have time for all the things that they want to do. They will have time for it because they're not drawing fire stairs, right? Yeah, like, exactly. that's what they want to do. I don't want you to have to draw things that you don't really care about. 
That's there it. will be a company that just makes fire stairs. There and is company. There <laughs> but wait, there are companies for years and years and years that make fire stairs prefabricated. There you by go. The don't you remember on that job? This is, I don't know if you remember this. I won't say who it was, but I did a talk on design for at the time, design for manufacturing and assembly, not data, because back then it was design. And I talked about the principles that I think about, like design it once, use it many times, and design for safety and design for whatever, all these nine different principles, right? Design it for multi-use. And the customer came in the next day, I don't know if you remember this, and he took open a catalog and he was like, see these stairs? I counted the number of stairs to our equipment that we have and how many, it was like some unbelievable variety of like, what, and that's costing us X amount of dollars. He's like, from now on, we're using small, medium, and large stairs from this catalog, nothing else. We just saved whatever the number was, some crazy millions of dollars. $300,000, yeah. It was some crazy number. It was like, stop designing stairs. And that, I'm not kidding. That was like, <laughs> Do you remember that? The customer came in and said that the next day. He's like, stop designing different stairs for me every single time. It's yes. ridiculous, right? Yep. Wow. This has been, uh, look at how, Ooh, look how the time that. has flown. That's the thing. Like, I, I, I promise you that, that you'd only be here for like an hour. And I think we've already been here an hour and 15 minutes. And this is oh, okay. gold. I want to get you back because I want to talk about the, one of the issues that you raised that I want to talk about is, is this kind of... Um, notion about competition and competitive bidding and things like that. So we're, we're going to have to have you back for that. Cause I think that's, another, I, will, I will do it. I think that's another way, hour. When I talked to Jamie Johnson on his podcast. We ended up making it into two. So I did Brian Woods podcast and Jamie and I ended up splitting it into two podcasts. Cause he's like, we got to talk more. And I was like, great. So we ended up taking it and splitting. I'm happy to do it anytime. Dick Byer, by the way, this is like a vacation for me. I get to sit and hang out and talk to you like a hundred percent. I could do this all the time. You are the best. I've been in love with you my whole life. And, um, and, and, and the fact that you just you know, talk as quickly as I do, I mean, it's, it's a, we, you're, you're the only person that I can kind of talk over in a way that it's like a double helix. Like you talk <laughs> over me right back and we weave this, we weave this thing together. That's like a tapestry. It's fantastic. Exactly. I do. So I love hanging out with you so much. I so. love you too. I love hanging out with you. So let's think about that, uh, that competition thing. We'll get you back on. I'm in. Uh, Cause I think that's, that's another notion we have to change yeah. out there in the world. In. right? So thank you so much for your time. Good luck with all the things you're doing. And uh, of course, we'll be in touch to, you know, now I have a whole new business plan to go out and do um, do playbooks for owners. Which That's already a business plan. Come help me at Autodesk. We're already doing stuff. I'm happy Come to help. do that. I would all love right. to do that. And all by right. the way, I would like help from the best reason I came here is I want help from anybody out there that wants to start working with our owners, um, you know, and that has any type of consulting that they offer in anything that happens to be unique. And, and, and we're doing that with lots of different customers all around the world. Love to have it informed by lots of great people. Well, that's fantastic. We've already had like uh, 3000 downloads from 37 countries. So I love it. If you're out there, just write Amy Marks at change.com and you will be just perfect. Check out, check out my YouTube uh, <laughs> playlist at Autodesk. I think our queen of prefab has like over 3 million views in the last like few months. So <sighs> you're, you're killing in, me here. I am just check out, come and check us out. We have a fourth episode coming out. I got to get Dick. I got to get you on one of my, my things out there for sure. I just feel like I, you know, I'm the teardrop trailer on the back of your train. It's just unbelievable. It's fantastic. I'm always there with you. I got you, Dick. You just keep coming with me. Like we you're got the best. It. Thanks, right, Amy. We're, we'll, let's do this soon again. All right. Bye. Hey, thanks so much. Thank you for tuning in to the Lean Construction Blogs podcast. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, please help us spread the word by sharing, subscribing, or leaving a review on your preferred podcast listening platform. Remember to join us next time as we continue to lower the barriers to applying lean construction and help take your lean journey to the next level. And don't forget to visit the Lean Construction blog to stay up to date on our latest podcast episodes, weekly blog posts, monthly webinars, and upcoming conferences. We hope to see you on the next episode.